dyed, blonde-haired, three-year-old, three-year-old boy in my house has recently developed fear of the dark. In response, we've supplied him with a variety of anti-darkness devices, including a nightlight that operates by touch, and you can like fade it. It's amazing. I would have never imagined such a thing as a child. Um, uh, also, a keychain light that I got at my high school reunion, and then my favorite, a gigantic Lego stormtrooper that whose feet light up when you touch its belly. Maybe some of you guys have seen those. It's pretty amazing. We bought it used at that little store, kind of on De La Vina. It's awesome, awesome find. He hasn't always been afraid of the dark. He actually grew into it. And it's not just the dark. He's afraid to go upstairs alone, which is problematic because his room is upstairs. <laughs> He's afraid of shadows creatures and noises, both fictional and non. This fear seems like a step back, like reversion, but is actually a natural part of his development. He's becoming more creative. His imagination is more active. He's imagining what might be out there in the darkness. We all do this. We're afraid of what might happen, afraid of the unknown. We imagine things, and it's funny what we imagine. Statistically, our biggest or most common fears are not like getting in a car crash or a certain president with his finger on the nuclear missiles. The most common fear is glossophobia, fear of public speaking. 74% of the population is afraid of public speaking. That is more than the percentage of folks who fear death. <laughs> in other words, people would rather die than speak in public. Of course, most things we worry about are not these grand fears. They are small things or things that are very unlikely. In the words of Tom Petty, most things I worry about never happen anyway. In his book on creative expression called The War of Art, author Stephen Pressfield identifies fear as both a hindrance and a sign that is crucial to the work to which we are called. He says, fear is an indicator. Fear tells us what we have to do. The more scared we are of a work or a calling, the more sure we can be that we have to do it. Much like Henry's fear of the dark, fear is a natural part of our development. Pressfield calls this fear resistance. Resistance is the force preventing creative expression, societal change, and self-development. He says, our job in this life is not to shape ourselves into some ideal we imagine we ought to be, but to find out who we already are and become it. 
in the process of becoming ourselves, or what we in the Jesus way would call finding our true selves in God and neighbor, we are constantly shedding bits of who we have been. That is what Jesus is getting at in the gospel today, the call to take up the cross, and the ominous, I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. Here, Jesus is responding to those whose notion of peace is docile, whose notion of peace is not rocking the boat, whose notion of growth is passive. Jesus reminds us that the building of God's kingdom can be divisive. In the corresponding portion from Luke's gospel, Jesus says, I have not come to bring peace, but division. Here, in Matthew, the sword is a symbol of division. For the primarily Jewish audience of Matthew's gospel, conversion meant family division. To seek Jesus, to seek the kingdom of God, meant you were going to cut yourself off from the family tradition, from your heritage. It was a huge deal. This week I got a call from a friend in Boston. Every summer of his life, he and his siblings have flown to Iowa to visit their relatives out there. But this year, for the first year ever, they're not going. The political differences have become so divisive that the family is splitting apart. I hear this in nearly every family. The political climate has divided son against father, daughter against mother, daughter-in-law against mother-in-law, although that last one may not be the toughest one to splinter. But I digress. For many of us, it feels like our foes are members of our own household. Today, the division is Trump or liberals and conservatives. In the early church, it was Christians and Jews. But family division is age old. We see it in the Old Testament passage for today. What a mess this is. Ugh. In this little passage, or maybe not so little, we have family dynamics, racism, xenophobia, economic inequality, privilege, selfishness, poverty, despair, and on and on and on. There's a lot in there. If you missed it at the beginning, I suggest you give it another read and then let it sit for a bit and read it again. Old Testament scholar Rolf Jacobson points out, historically the emphasis in this passage has shifted. In antiquity, this was a story of Abraham and Isaac. Then feminists remind us of the story of Sarah. Then womenists and black feminists reminded us of Hagar. In her book, Just a Sister Away, Renita Weems analyzes the relationship between Hagar and Sarah and its implications. She starts off by saying, We know all too well how ancient men felt about women, but how women felt about themselves we do not know. 
One of the best ways to get an idea of how a woman feels about being a woman is to take a look at how she treats other women. With regard to Sarah and Hagar, Reams says, theirs is a story of ethnic prejudice exacerbated by economic and sexual exploitation. Theirs is a story of conflict, women betraying women, mothers conspiring against mothers. Let's rewind just a little bit and remember the context. Hagar is Sarah's slave, her servant. It is a relationship of intense intimacy, particularly in light of Sarah's elderly state. Mind you, Hagar is an Ethiopian, an outsider. In light of Sarah's infertility, Sarah then Sarai begged her husband to have sex with her and impregnate Hagar. Notice, Hagar's voice is silent in this exchange. Hagar gives birth to a son, Ishmael, and later Sarah has a miraculous pregnancy and gives birth to Isaac. Then Sarah doesn't need or even want Hagar or her child around. So she convinces Abraham to kick her out, effectively banishing her to death in light of her economic and social isolation. As they are on the verge of death, Hagar abandons her son, her only love, her comfort in an extremely harsh life so that she won't have to watch him die. But God hears the cries. God hears her suffering. This is significant, not just because it reminds us that God hears us in our distress. Ishmael, the name means God hears. God hears the cries of the oppressed. God hears the cries of the forgotten. God hears the cries of the outcast, the lost, the silence. It is God who transforms our fears. It is God who brings justice. I spend plenty of time worrying about politics plenty of time worrying about what I will say or do, but these stories remind us, they reorient us to the eternal truth that runs through our lives. These are stories about God. That is what matters. That is where Jesus directs us today. Do not be afraid. Have no fear of them. Turn from resistance to love eternal. This is what matters. Jesus' way, love of God and neighbor. Jesus is not saying it will be easy. He's not saying it will be glamorous. He says, have no fear of those who kill the body. Ugh. Like everyone from Origin of Alexandria and Felicitas to Joan of Arc and MLK, this Jesus way might get you killed. It might. Because God hears. 
God hears and God acts through the body of Christ. Acts through us. We know what becomes of the body of Christ. It is killed, then resurrected. The way of love eternal will transform us if we let it. Sometimes that means family division. Sometimes it means giving up our fears, starting over. Sometimes it means loving the unlovable to the detriment of our own well-being. But the story does not end there. It goes on. Resurrected. We risk what we have been for what we will be. Where the darkness we feared is transformed by the love we know. Amen. Amen.